Amen. Well, good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, as we continue in our brand new sermon series, Luke, to save the world. Luke, we met last week. He's a physician. He's a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, not an eyewitness, but he uh, recorded these words as uh, he did interviews with the eyewitnesses and compiled this orderly account for us. As you're turning there with me in your Bibles, uh, let me start by saying this. It seems like every Christmas time, media outlets confront us, their viewers, with the question of the true meaning of Christmas. Uh, the release of Christmas, Christmas-themed movies always provides some fodder about the true meaning of the season portrayed in those kinds of films. But it's not just Hollywood. Journalists also dive into this question, too, such as the recent CNN series Finding Jesus, Faith, Fact, and forgery, which explores this historical question with a documentary-style uh, viewing with some texts and artifacts. But it's not just Hollywood, and it's not just the media. It's also the political realm. We see politicians on both sides of the aisle who invoke the name of Jesus and advocate uh, for their particular cause or platform in that manner. So for conservatives, Jesus is a conservative. And for progressives, Jesus is a progressive. And for libertarians, Jesus is a libertarian. Everybody seems to want Jesus on their side of whatever particular uh, cause or position that they're advocating for. Uh, even in the realm of diet and health food, you've got people like Don Colbert, the purveyor of dietary supplements who published the What Would Jesus Eat cookbook, uh, modeled on Jesus' example, which tells us how to follow Jesus for health advice. Uh, redefining Jesus is a well-trotted path. Uh, one of the things I've noticed is that Jesus will often become a mirror reflection of the person describing him. And so uh, whole food doctors see him as a promoter of whole foods. And uh, agnostics will see everything that Jesus doesn't know. And comedians see Jesus as a comic. And gay writers present Jesus as a homosexual. Uh, the Babylon Bee humorously captured this phenomenon in an article with the headline... Jesus was a socialist deconstructionist feminist, claimed by a socialist deconstructionist feminist. Right? Uh, in his book, The Writings of the New Testament, believing scholar Luke Timothy Johnson explains this problem in the academy. Quote, at this point, the subjective character of the entire enterprise becomes evident. The framework chosen often reveals as much about the investigator as it does about Jesus. When scholars, all using the same methods and studying the same materials, derive such a variety of historical Jesuses, a revolutionary zealot, a cynic radical, an agrarian reformer, a gay magician, a charismatic cult reformer, a peasant, a guru of oceanic bliss, then one may well wonder whether anything more than a sophisticated and elaborate form of projection has taken place. But what if we're interested in the truth about Jesus? Not in trying to justify ourselves, not in trying to uh, justify our particular cause or our interests, but what if we're interested in learning about the actual Jesus, the one who lived 2,000 years ago, for who he really was? Well, I know of no better place to go than to the Gospel of Luke, and this will be our study over the next seven months. In this study, we're not seeking who we personally wish Jesus to be, Rather, we're seeking after who Jesus is revealed to be. Uh, we learned last week in our introduction that Luke has compiled this orderly account, investigated everything, and today we begin with the early years of Jesus. Luke chapters 1 and 2 are commonly known as the infancy narratives. 
And we'll look at chapter 1, verse 5 through 38 in a message I've just simply entitled, uh, Jesus of the Bible. And I think we'll see four things to be true about God in our text today. Uh, we will see, number one, that our God is a speaking God. Number two, we'll see that our God is a personal God. Number three, we're going to see that our God is a saving God. And finally, fourthly, we're going to see that our God is a faithful God. Amen. That's where we're headed, and we could use the Lord's help for this. So I would invite you to bow your heads for a moment for a word of prayer. Uh, would you just take a moment and pray silently in your own heart that the Lord would use this time uh, in your life, that this would be helpful to you? Just take a moment and do that, would you? And would you just also take a moment and pray for your speaker today, uh, that I would be helpful to that end as well. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, that it is indeed a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. As the word uh, is read today, may these uh, words be a blessing to our hearts and our lives. May they be used to greater conform us to the image of your Son, who's introduced in these few verses. Uh, may we have removed from our heart anything that would prevent us from hearing from you. And uh, as we go from this place, remove from our path any stumbling block that would uh, preclude us from obeying your word. Make this time uh, rich and effective. Uh, we pray that you'd make our speaker very, very, very small so that you would be seen as very, very, very big. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Point number one, our God is a speaking God. Join me in Luke 1, verse 5. The text begins like this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So Luke starts his story with Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist. And here they are described as righteous, which doesn't mean they are perfect, because none are perfect. It just means that they were faithful and above reproach. Zechariah and his wife were consistently obedient, but... They'd never been blessed with children. And so they were well along in years at this point, and these circumstances would have been very difficult, especially in the first century. Perhaps for Elizabeth, the inability to have children would have been a lifelong source of pain, sorrow, and shame. Perhaps there were pregnancies to spark new hope, and then miscarriages to dash those hopes with grief and loss. We don't really know, but Elizabeth's self-worth probably sunk lower and lower and lower as the years passed her by. Infertility is an aching disappointment for any, culture, for any couple in any culture, but in the ancient culture, it would be considered to be particularly disgraceful and perhaps even as a punishment. So at some point, she and everyone around her would have declared Elizabeth barren and branded her with that lifelong stigma. And then something amazing happened. Follow along, starting in verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, pause for a second. Now, this would have been a very unusual day in the life of Zechariah, the priest. 
Zechariah was a Levite. He was chosen to perform this duty to offer the incense. This ritual would have occurred twice a day, every day, once every morning and once every afternoon, so that the incense would always be burning at the altar, always burning before the Lord, symbolizing the prayers of the saints that were always going up to the presence of God. For you technical people, there were 24 different divisions of the Levites, with each division serving for two weeks at a time every year. And the priest who would get to offer the incense would be chosen for that duty by the casting of lots. And once you were chosen, you would be then ineligible to serve in that way ever, ever, ever again. So this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah to enter the temple and offer incense in this way. So can you imagine what it was like for him to leave uh, his home that morning uh, and speak to his wife Elizabeth on their way out the door? Honey, today's your day. Don't forget to pray. Pray for what? You know what we're praying for. It's the same thing we've been praying for our whole married lives. So this was an important day in the life of their family. This was also the greatest moment of his entire priestly career. Uh, he would offer the incense, and then before everyone, he would come back out of the temple as the crowd was gathered on the outside, and he would offer them the priestly benediction, probably the one from Numbers chapter 6. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, and may the Lord give you his peace. This was his 15 minutes of fame. This was Zechariah's big moment. But even though that was such a huge deal in his life, that turns out to be not the lead story. In fact, the lead story is that God is going to break his 400 years of silence on this day. Now, just think about how long that is for a moment with me. Today, uh, we stand in the year 2023. So 400 years ago would be the year 1623. When, like, the Mayflower landed in this country. That's a really long time ago. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Imagine waiting for that long. We go from Malachi the prophet around 400 B.C. to right here. You know there's that one page in your Bible that separates the Old Testament and the New Testament? I know it's just one page, but that one page represents a very, very, very long time. Imagine 400 years where there's no prophet, 400 years where God's voice was never heard. Generations had lived and died never hearing from God in their lifetime. This is the moment right here in Luke chapter 1 where the God of the universe is about to resume speaking. It's really amazing. And he chooses to speak to this relatively unknown man named Zechariah whose name means Yahweh has remembered. And so, yes, serving with incense was a special day for Zechariah, but he has no idea just how special this day is about to become. It was so much more than he expected. He's about to get the experience of a lifetime in the temple. Continue with me with verse 11. As he's in there, the text simply says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Zechariah is in awe, gripped with fear at this frightening messenger, which always in the Bible, this is the response when people encounter an angelic messenger. It's never like, oh, look at that cute little cherub, cuddly, cuddly angel thing. Oh, coochie, coochie, coo, little angel. No! It's always like, ah! 
yeah, what is this? That's the response of everybody when they encounter an angel. So Zechariah is no exception. And the reason why angels are frightening is because our God is an awesome God, holy and majestic, and his angelic messengers are an awesome reflection of him. The text continues with verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Pause there. Notice the angel says, your prayer has been heard. His wife Elizabeth will bear a, a son named John, whose name means God is gracious. Hints right here of the power of the gospel earlier on, early on in the, in the book of Luke. It's by the grace of God that new life will come even from a barren womb. And he would be not just any son. No, this baby would be the only baby in the Bible who would be filled with the Spirit from birth. John's life will be marked by the power of the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. And so we're told here that there are some instructions that John is not to ever have any strong drink. Some say that this is an argument against all strong drink for everyone, or teetotalism. Other people say this is, this is about abstinence from alcohol or substance for Christian leaders. Others say this might be a Nazarite vow, a vow according to the book of Numbers. That might be the case, but a Nazarite vow also included the cut, not cutting the hair, and there's not anything here about the hair. And so I'd like to propose for you this morning a more simple reason. John would be a very animated and bold and outspoken figure. And God Almighty wanted it never to be mistaken that he was intoxicated or filled with a different kind of spirit, but that his power came from God and God alone. You'll recall in Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, when the apostles are filled with the Spirit in the upper room, they mistake things there and say, these men must be drunk. And so to make things absolutely clear, God puts a lifelong ban on alcohol or any intoxicating substance on John. And the reason is because God has a special mission for this little baby. And what will be that specific mission? Well, the text tells us in verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Here, this John would fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah and the prophecies of Malachi. He would be the forerunner of the Messiah to prepare the way for the Lord. We're told elsewhere that John the Baptist would be the greatest man ever born of women. The greatest man ever born of women. All the other prophets filled with the Spirit would say that the Messiah will be coming one day, but it is John the Baptist alone who will get to say the Messiah is here. Amen. And now that his forerunner is coming, the Messiah must be right around the corner. So what is his response to this? Well, verse 18 tells us, and Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Which, I don't know if this is the right place for humor. I find that to be a funny response. 
I'm kind of a big deal. Like, you know who I am? I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm Gabriel. Let me just start with this. Hey, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah's incredulity at the thought of having a child makes it seem like this hasn't entered into his mind for quite some time. He thinks as he considers the barrenness of his wife Elizabeth, that ship has sailed. He has given up. New Testament commentator Mike McClinley says this, quote, Zechariah's response here is almost comical. A celestial visitor has just met him in the temple and told him that he will have a son who will fulfill ancient prophecy about Elijah's coming to prepare the way for the Lord. And yet his first thought is about whether or not his elderly wife can get pregnant. Think about that. Zechariah says, okay, angel, I can live with that. I got that. I believe that. All right. God's breaking his 400 years of silence right here with me. Yep. No problem. I'm full of faith. Let me hear what you got to say, God. God is speaking. The Messiah is coming. Yep. I understand all that. Are you telling me my wife's going to get pregnant? Now that's taking things too far. Now that, that, that's just, I can't believe that. I won't believe that. Apparently he really didn't expect God to answer those prayers. As a result of his lack of faith, Zechariah is rendered not able to speak, and this is a judgment from God for his unbelief, which seems harsh to us at first, but the reason is Zechariah has more than just a moment of doubt. It's more of a hardened cynicism that has required God to discipline him. We'll talk more about that in a moment. First, let's finish the account here. The text continues with verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service ended, he went home. Again, I don't know if this is the right time for humor or not, but to me this is like one of the funniest scenes in the whole Bible. Just pause and imagine you're out there in the crowd that day as you see Zechariah come out of the temple. It's a very public moment. Have you ever lost your voice to like laryngitis or something and you just can't articulate what you need to say? After his priestly duty, Zechariah was supposed to come out and present the benediction, but he is unable to speak in this moment. Just think of it. He has just heard the greatest news anybody has heard in at least 400 years, but he can't tell anybody. He's out there just waving his hands. I don't know. <laughs> Zechariah's silence would be a sign that God had not been silent. This incident presents some irony. Zechariah would not be able to speak because he thought God was not able to speak. As a symbol, his own speaking after this period of silence at the end of Luke chapter 1 will mirror God's speaking after the 400 years of silence since the prophet Malachi. Now, it's important to note that later on in this text, we have the same angel coming to two different people, here to Zechariah, later to Mary. And on the surface, it looks like they have almost the same response, but one is disciplined for his doubt, but in the other, there is no word of rebuke given to Mary whatsoever. 
And we read these two texts side by side and we wonder why the difference. Tim Keller is helpful here in his book, Hidden Christmas, saying this, quote, the only real possibility is that the inner motivations and dynamics of Zechariah's and Mary's doubts were different. There's a kind of doubt that really is seeking more information, that wants to believe if it's possible. But he says, there's also a kind of doubt that really is looking for a way out, that doesn't want to believe or submit, that's looking for a way to keep control of one's life. Friends, the Bible doesn't view doubts as always rebellious, nor does it encourage people to live in doubt perpetually. So there's a kind of doubt that's not pleasing to God. For Zechariah, as a priest, he was responsible to believe that God could intervene, that God could bring life out of nothing, that God could reverse the decay of nature. But somewhere, somehow, at some point, he got cynical. At some point, he became a professional clergy person. And so God says right here, if you can't believe that I can speak and I can bless my people, then it's better that you not be the one to go out and bless my people today. And God strikes him mute. And so this is point number one. Our God is a speaking God. Do you believe this? Many people do not. All around us, we're celebrating what is a very secular version of the Christmas holiday. All around us, people are talking, even sometimes about Jesus, even non-believers. It's almost like they're spiritual beings, and they can't help but to talk about God. But yet they are in unbelief. New York Times author Nicholas Kristof wondered in his Christmas column if there's a place for people like himself in the Christmas story or in Christianity as a whole. People like himself, people who don't believe in any of the supernatural or theological elements of the Bible or the Gospels, but still appreciate the value of some subset of the teachings of Jesus that they find to be palatable. It's exactly this kind of hardened skepticism that's not pleasing to God. The scriptures are clear that those who come to God must first believe. Church, I hope we do a good job recognizing that our God is a speaking God. And he has spoken to us primarily in his word. Amen. So let me ask you, do you believe the word of God? Do you know the word of God? Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to be a student of God's word. Grab that journal that goes through the book of Luke and study God's word because our God is a speaking God. Amen. The story continues to tell us that Elizabeth does become pregnant, just as God said, but she does a much better job than her husband acknowledging the truth of the word of God. Look with me at verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So we see right away women take a very prominent role here in the Gospel of Luke. They will take a prominent role at the beginning, and they will hold that prominent role right up until the end. The ladies usually get it faster than the men. And all the ladies in the house said, amen. amen. Mike McKinley, commentator on Luke, says this, quote, Zechariah lacked the faith to see what was obvious to his wife. How is this all going to be possible? Elizabeth gets right to the heart of the matter. Look at the screen. She says, it is the Lord who has done this. 
So we see movement one. Our God is a speaking God. And now we must move to movement two. Our God is a personal God, meaning our God is personally involved in history and in our lives. Now, if we were watching a movie, this is where we'd get some kind of subtitle message that said, meanwhile in Galilee. Because when Elizabeth is six months pregnant, Gabriel makes his second earthly appearance, this time to Mary, and this time he's delivering the most miraculous pregnancy announcement of all, the Annunciation. Take a look with me at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Pause for a second. You'll notice in verse 27 that Mary was a virgin. She was pledged to be married. In those days, this would have been a formal consent that was made before witnesses. The bride's family would have likely paid a dowry and the bride would live with her own family of origin while the new husband was preparing their new residence. And then, after they were married, that's when physical intimacy would occur. But at this point, Mary was a virgin. In verse 30, we learn that she has found favor with God. Now, I want you to notice that this is not a special pronouncement that is only reserved for Mary in the Bible. In fact, the same exact phrase is used to describe all believers in Ephesians chapter 1. And so I want to say with all due respect to my Catholic friends, the Bible does not teach that Mary was born without sin or that she lived without sin. It simply teaches that she was a good example for us in accepting God's will for her life, no matter the cost. And here is the announcement of the angel. Look with, with me at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Now, as I mentioned earlier, Mary is not so much doubtful or skeptical, but more mystified, confused, and maybe astounded. And so Mary says, How will this be? And the angel continues to answer her question with verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. Pause and notice, we have two different birth stories in Luke chapter 1, and they are parallel on purpose. You will notice that both stories have the arrival of the angel Gabriel. You'll notice that both stories have the news of a seemingly impossible pregnancy. Third, you will notice that both stories have an initial response of fear. Fourth, you'll notice that they both have a, a promise about the child's future. And fifth, they both have a promise about this child's purpose and mission and identity. Now, births are not that extraordinary. Babies are born every day. There's going to be 400,000 babies born today. But there are two kinds of women who never, ever give birth very old women and virgins. 
Now, I realize in our day, you're thinking in your mind some exceptions with IVF and stuff. Let's just get into that subject later. But back then, certainly, these two births were extremely unusual. And so how do we make sense of that in our day? Higher criticism says there's no way this is possible. We live in a scientific age. But I want you to notice in the text here that Mary and Elizabeth were not some gullible ancients who didn't know where babies come from. They found this whole idea just as, unlikely, just as unlikely as you and I do. But their answer to why this is possible and how the supernatural can be possible is the same answer that you and I give. And it's found in verse 20, 37 here. And I want you to just underline this next verse in your journal. Uh, put it in big, bold ink. Highlight it. Circle it. Do whatever you got to do, okay? Because here's the answer. Verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. I just want to drop anchor for a second here. This is the testimony of God over and over and over again in the Bible to his people. And for some of you today, you need to hear verse 37. Nothing is impossible with God. You need to hear that verse because God is speaking to you and encouraging you in what seems like Right now, it seems like an impossible situation in your life, and you need to hear afresh this morning this verse, nothing is impossible with God. Amen. This is the truth back then, and it is the truth today. We need to have the faith to believe as Elizabeth and Mary believed. And this will be a pattern in the book of Luke. Salvation must come in such a way that only God can accomplish it. So that we will know that God has done it when it comes about, and he will get all of the glory for doing it. Amen. Mary responds with faith in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. As an aside, the cost for Mary here would be considerable. She would be pregnant out of wedlock, subjected to shame, terrorized by what others thought of her. Actually, in the Old Testament, she could have been stoned to death for this. Her path would surely include mockery and suffering, though she would be used by God in a mighty way to bear this child. So here, Mary receives this personal news gracefully and willingly. But Mary, unlike Elizabeth, is finding out that her challenges and her disgrace are just about to begin. And she simply says here, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be. Let it be. Years ago, Paul McCartney was going through a difficult season when he had a dream about his mother, Mary, coming to him, reassuring him with similar words. I took the liberty to rephrase those famous Beatles lyrics to give them a more distinctively Christian flavor to bring comfort for all of us to remember. When I find myself in times of trouble... I'll recall what Mary said to thee, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, her response is right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. May that be your prayer of faith today in whatever God is calling you to do, let it be. And who would this child be? We're told in the text that this child would be holy, the Son of God. His name would be Jesus, God's one and only Son. This is what theologians call the doctrine of the incarnation, the doctrine that God became flesh, 
namely that the one who made man was made man. As the hymn says, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And he would live and he would die with suffering at the center point of his life as well. And so this suffering is not just for Mary. It's also a foreshadow for the suffering of her son. Friends, our God is not a God who is far removed in the clouds. No, our God is a God who knows what it means to suffer. Jesus of the Scars is a poem written by Edward Chalito, a congregational minister who lived during the horrors of the Great War, World War I, and published this poem in its wake in the year 1919. Allow me to read it to you. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us, where is the bomb? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are, have no fear. Show us thy scars, we know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds speak, and not a god has wounds, but thou alone. Amen. Friends, this is the God we worship and proclaim the one who is personally involved in history and personally involved in our lives, the one who is willing to suffer with us as no other God. Two points of application. Number one, these are words of great comfort. Whatever we go through, we need to know that we have a sympathetic high priest who understands all of our temptations and trials. And number two, this serves not only as the ultimate point of salvation history, but it also serves as a lesson for us for Philippians chapter 2 says, Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who serves as our model of humility and servanthood and even suffering. Our God is personally involved in our lives, and as such, we are called to be personally involved in the lives of others. Point number three. Our God is not just a speaking God, and our God is not just a personal God. Our God is also a saving God. Our God is surprisingly merciful. Our God is full of love. Our God is full of grace. Look with me again at verse 31. The angel said, And you shall call his name Jesus. The name Jesus simply means the Lord saves, or Yahweh saves, Yeshua, Joshua. We see here that our God is committed to saving a people for himself by his grace, by his mercy. But as Pastor Bob shared with us last week, the Gospel of Luke is about Jesus coming to save lost people who do not think they're lost, feel they're lost, or know they're lost. So may I ask you a question this morning? Do you know you're lost? Do you believe that you need saving? Surely not everyone does. This is not a popular message today. In recent years, Richard Rohr's best-selling panentheistic treatment of Jesus, the universal Christ, expressed the good news of the gospel, taking the form of a series of questions for the reader. Quote, 
What if Christ is a name for the transcendent within everything in the universe? What if Christ is a name for the immense spaciousness of all true love? What if Christ refers to an infinite horizon that pulls us from within and pulls us forward to? What if Christ is another name for everything in its fullness? Brothers and sisters, this is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus was the Holy Son of God, born of Mary, born to save a rebellious people, a people like me who deserve God's just punishment. Tim Keller says in his book, Hidden Christmas, this is why Christmas is more wondrous and more threatening than we imagine. The all-accepting God of love many moderns believe in would never have bothered with the incarnation. Such a God would have found it completely unnecessary. Christmas implies that I am in need of a Savior. This is why Jesus has come, to be the Savior I need. See, the Bible teaches that God is just, but the Bible also teaches that God delights to show his mercy. Through his work on Christmas, he sent Jesus, his one and only son, to be born and to live and then to die on a cross in our place for our sins because the Bible teaches that our God is a saving God. This is how we can have the peace that Advent promises us in week two, by accepting his work of peace on our behalf. This is why Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is why the hymn writer says, Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Amen. This is the peace that we are offered on Christmas. This theological truth can be put into two simple phrases like this, No Jesus, no peace, no Jesus no peace. If you know him, you know peace. He is our peace in Ephesians chapter 2. But if you don't know him, you don't know peace. Friends, do you recognize yourself in need of his salvation? Do you recognize him as your prince of peace, as your savior? If you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I urge you to do that today. If you'd like more information about what that means, please come up and talk to me after the service. Our God is a saving God. But our God is not just a speaking God, and our God is not just a personal God, and our God is not just a saving God. We learn, point number four in our text, that our God is a faithful God. Do you see how faithful God is to fulfill his promise? God's word is filled with promises and fulfillments, and our God keeps his promises. But brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you, that so many of the Bible's promises from beginning to end are fulfilled in this very chapter right here that we're looking at today. This is the nexus. This is the center. This is the climax. This is the pinnacle of God's promises and their fulfillment. Our God is a faithful God. Look again at verse 31. Look carefully at Gabriel's words. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This text is so rich with Old Testament background. This is the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. This is the answer to David's prayer 
that God would build a house for him that would last forever. The only kingdom that has no end is the kingdom of God promised in Daniel chapter 2. Did God not promise that all peoples in the world would be blessed through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Isn't that what we see fulfilled right here in this chapter? Did God not promise to establish the throne of David in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Is he not doing that right here? Did God not promise in Isaiah 7 that a virgin would be with child and give birth to a son? Is he not fulfilling his word right here? And did God not promise through Isaiah in chapter 40 that there would be a voice of one calling in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord? Is that, that promise being fulfilled right here? Did not Malachi the prophet promise that God would send a messenger ahead of the Messiah? Is not John the Baptist that very messenger? Did not Isaiah promise in chapter 9 that its people who walk in great darkness would see a great light? Is that light not beginning to dawn right here in this chapter? Did God not promise to save his people and to rescue his people from our enemies of sin and death and the devil? Is God not doing that right here? Don't we see all of these promises coming to fulfillment right here in this chapter? Here we are, centuries and centuries later, after those promises were given, and God himself is being faithful to his word. Isn't he faithful? Isn't he good? Doesn't he show himself over the centuries to be always true and always faithful? Friends, the answer is yes. And all of the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. amen. Let me encourage you to gather evidence of God's faithfulness in your own life. If God's word is so certain, shouldn't we know it? Shouldn't we study it so that we might have a knowledge of what promises we have in Christ? If God kept his promises to his people back then, that means God will keep his promises to you. So where in your life right now are you needing a faithful God who keeps his word and keeps his promises? What hard time are you going through right now? And you need to remember that our God is a faithful God. Are you going through a hard time at work? Are you going through a hard time in your family? Is there something difficult that you're facing at school? I want you to remember that God keeps his promises to his people. He will certainly keep his promises to you. Remember his promises. Claim his promises. Memorize his promises. Speak those promises to yourself and to your own spouse and to your family and to your children. These promises are essential in your Christian life. Amen. Our God is a faithful God. Amen. So our God is a speaking God. Our God is indeed a personal God. Our God is a saving God. And our God is a faithful God. I started the message today with a question, who is the real Jesus? And what we've learned in our text today is that the biblical Jesus is the very Son of God, and he's come to meet our deepest needs. Friends, you and I need a God who speaks. Our God has spoken. You and I need a personal God who will be with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. You and I need a saving God because we are lost, whether we want to admit it or not, and our God is a Savior. And you and I need a faithful God who keeps his word with us. And our God is a faithful God. Amen. We human beings have a surprising capacity to create Jesus in our own image. But the challenge of the Christmas story is not to make Jesus in our image. The message of Christmas is that Jesus has come to form you into his image. Amen. This is the message of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has come to save the world, and this includes you. 
This is the Jesus of the Bible. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward for one more song. And as they do, let's pray. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Oh, dear God, thank you for revealing who you are. Thank you for these stories that you preserve for us in this text. Thank you for these women who believed you at your word and who are a careful and tender rebuke for those of us who may need it this morning. Thank you that you are a God who speaks, and you are a God who's personally involved in history and in our lives, and you're a God who saves, and you're a God who's so faithful, even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. And thank you for Mary, and thank you for Elizabeth, who were led so joyfully to magnify the Lord. May our hearts today also take all of this fuel from Luke chapter 1. And may we convert that into flames of praise as we sing joy to the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.